Our reading, which Paul's going to talk about, is from Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 to 8. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thought of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. Uh, Well, thank you for the invitation to speak tonight. And thank you for the prayers that have been sent up on my behalf. They're very much appreciated and very necessary. Um, One golden rule about any sort of public speaking is never start with an apology. But I would like to start tonight by saying sorry for that gloomy reading from Genesis. Um, It doesn't get much bleaker than that. Um, What I really want to talk about is God so loved the world. But I thought if I had a reading from John 3, um, it might give a slightly false impression of just what I wanted to say. Um, The significance of that uh, Genesis reading will, I hope, become clear in a few moments. Um, I think many of us here are from what are called a reformed Protestant evangelical tradition. And uh, we love telling people about how important it is to be saved for the next word. We love a sermon about salvation. Um, And I'm up for that as well. I owe that tradition a lot. Um, But I sometimes wonder, in our rush to tell people how God gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life, perhaps we skip over the equally remarkable first part of John 3.16, that God so loved the world. I'm going to say why I think that is so remarkable. I don't want to diminish the, um, the concern for salvation in the next world in any way, but sometimes I do feel that in our evangelical tradition, we sometimes tend to emphasize the hereafter, over the here and now. And in our zeal for the next world, perhaps sometimes we need to step back and reflect on how much God really loves this world. John 3.16 starts off by saying, God so loved the world. He wanted to rescue it from Satan's sway so that as many people as possible might enjoy life in all its fullness. So for tonight, instead of reflecting on the importance of the next world, I'd like to reflect on how much God loved the world, and I believe still loves it. This world, this home, this here and now, this beloved planet, and not just the planet, but the people in it. That's really quite remarkable. Look at the way that, you know, in John's Gospel, he talks about the world meaning the people, the people who are under the sway of the prince of this world. Um, 
it's, it's a place of darkness and disobedience. And it is crazy that God so loved that world. Sometimes we need to check ourselves. We can forget just quite how much God loves this world and how much he longs for us to be obedient to his will in the here and now. Um, as Malcolm Muggeridge once famously wrote about Mother Teresa, to do something beautiful for God. If we can go back a few thousand years, God created a perfect world. Eden was a place of kingdom values, so much so that they wouldn't have even had the term, they wouldn't have needed the term because there would have been no other values. It was a place of obedience. And I wish we'd got a different word to obedience, just as I wish we'd got a different word for sin, but we haven't, we're stuck with those. Obedience can conjure up the wrong ideas. But in this case, obedience is, isn't an oppressive term. It's nothing to do with slavery or blind faith or bowing and scraping. It's simply the opposite of uh, rebellion. Jesus spent a lot of time telling his disciples and us to obey, to be obedient. And Eden wasn't a place of darkness because there were two great lights, the sun and the moon. It was a place of light. So it's no wonder that, um, you know, when God had made this place of kingdom values, obedience and light, it's no wonder that God saw all that he had made and it was very good, Genesis 1. It's hardly surprising that God so loved that world. But we all know what happened. We all know that darkness and rebellions came. Rebellion came. Um, James, in fact, did a very... Uh, good se uh, sermon series not so long ago on the early chapters of Genesis and the nature of the fall. And, you know, he spelt out what happened. Envy, lying, murder, bigamy. He spelt out very clearly how things went from bad to worse. And in fact, we get to a point um, in Genesis 5.29 where it says God cursed the ground or the earth, the world. Um, uh, we could almost say, at that point, God hated the world. I mean, if that sounds shocking, Genesis 6 doesn't mince its words. The Lord regretted he'd made human beings. I wiped them from the face of the earth. And with them, the animals, the birds, and the creatures. For I regret have made them. You know, we've gone from God so loved the world to God so hated the world. And then something incredible happens. And I must say, I find this one of the most incredible sentences in the whole Bible. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Remarkably, in the midst of all this darkness and disobedience and rebellion, there's something lovely. One thing God can find lovable. One obedient person. And I know his whole family is involved, I know there are eight of them, but let's just stick with the narrative for the moment. Because there's one lovable thing in the world, God can't help falling back in love with it. I find that's an incredible idea. We've gone from God so loved the world to God so hated the world to God so loved the world once again. And he can't fall out of love with it. He'll love it so much that he'll want to redeem it from Satan's sway 
no matter how long it takes, no matter how much it costs. It, I find it remarkable that this God, with whom darkness and rebellion are incompatible, should be so hopelessly in love with such a rebellious and dark world. And there are echoes of this throughout Scripture. Um, you remember, I'm sure, that incident later in Genesis when Abraham bargains with God over the future of Sodom, which God is minded to destroy for its wickedness. And there's that bargaining going on. If there are 50 righteous people, if there are 45, if there are 40, and then he talks God right down to 10 people. And it's clear that, you know, if, if there's 10 people, if there's anything lovable left in that city, God will show mercy to it and grace to it. God is always seeking the lovable. Sadly, in that case, there was nothing to love, and God you know, says to um, Lot and his family, get out whilst the going is good. But right throughout the Old and the New Testaments, there is this idea of this remnant, the people who haven't bowed their knees to, to Baal. There's something lovable in the world, and so long as that happens, God can't help being in love with the world. He so loves it. Um, if God could find something to love about just one obedient person, just imagine how much he loves when he, he sees to love when he looks at the world today with all the things that Jesus' people are doing in the world. Were you there when um, Jane Stronach was talking about uh, the Olive Tree Trust? And she spoke about just how these three ladies who weren't in the, the first flush of youth were going out to the Middle East and building these bridges and bringing back crafts from oppressed people in the Middle East and selling them here, um, providing something for those communities. And that, that must seem lovely. And when you, when you scale it up and you think of charities like Tear Fund and all the work that they're doing in Jesus' name, or when you think about a parish church opening its doors as a hub of warmth and welcome. How lovable that must seem in God's eyes. When I look at the, the Jesus of the Gospels, I see someone who looks with compassion on this world, who cherishes and yearns for its people. He so loves the world. Wherever he goes, his kingdom breaks out in the here and now. Yes, Jesus has a lot to say about the hereafter, but he's deeply concerned about the present, not just eternity. And I think here eternity is perhaps a bit different to what we might call eternal values. Jesus is concerned that we should base our lives here and now on eternal values to make the world lovelier in God's eyes. This is what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. This is about the Father's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. God seeing us being obedient to his laws. Um, let's be quite clear that God's law of justice, neighborliness, righteousness, wasn't just for the Jews. Yes, I know Paul has a lot to say about how the law no longer bind, bind, uh, binds us and how we're freed from a lot of the, uh, the constraints of the original law. Um, but really, I think Paul is... Um, criticizing those aspects of the law which had become ritualistic and hollow and meaningless. Uh, there is still so much about God's law uh, 
that is relevant to us today as Christians. We are still asked to be obedient to those laws. Um, the law of the Lord, that law concerning justice, righteousness, and neighborliness is still perfect. Jesus came to fulfill it, not to abolish it. We still have a cornerstone whose measuring line is justice and whose plumb line is righteousness. Jesus wants to see us being obedient to these laws. He came so that it might have life in all its fullness, here and now, on this earth that God so loves. Jesus had an urgency about bringing the Jews back to God's perfect law, for them to be a light to the Gentiles, and for nations to stream towards Zion, because it was so lovely. Of course, we can't make ourselves righteous by obedience to the law, but we can make the world lovelier. This reminds me of another famous uh, couple of verses in, in the Bible that um, evangelicals are very keen about at the end of Matthew 28, the Great Commission. We remember um, Matthew 28, 19, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Perhaps we just forget that little bit that comes after and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. A key part of the Great Commission is being obedient to God's perfect law, taking our opportunities to make this world even lovelier and more lovable in the eyes of God. I know that Paul wrote that if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied, 1 Corinthians 15. But that was said in the face of great persecutions and trials. I understand why he said it. I don't think, though, we should misunderstand it. We shouldn't fall into the trap of thinking that this life, this world, is somehow just transient and temporary and pitiable. Hope in Christ in this life is hugely important. It brings us life in all its fullness. It helps us to see the world as God sees it. Imperfect, of course, but full of potential and profoundly lovable. I don't think Paul was saying that this world's a piteous place that we have to endure, and it's only the prospect of a glorious afterlife that makes it bearable. He would have been the first to concede the importance of this world and the fact that God so loves it. One of the ways that um, God's love for this world has struck me very strongly recently has been reading, if you like, the other letters of the New Testament. Um, evangelicals, of course, love the letters of Paul and Hebrews, which may not have been written by Paul, but was very much part of his theology. And I tend to find that um, evangelicals often speak less about the letters of James and Peter and John but they were the ones who were building the church in Jerusalem. Um, I've been looking at their letters and trying to imagine the nature of the church that they were pastoring. And it seems to me to be a church trying to be obedient to God's law and make the world a more livable place in God's eyes. Of course, evangelicals love Paul's theology. It's profound, it's analytical through his 
huge knowledge and investigation of scripture. He solves the mystery of the resurrection. Um, he explains how Gentiles can be grafted into the vine. Um, he explains how righteousness can be reckoned to us by faith alone. He explains how we are absolved from God's condemnation. And it's great theology. But I do find that evangelicals tend to cite far less often the letters of the other apostles, the leaders of Jerusalem's church, James, Peter, and John. Um, Martin Luther famously wrote about the letter of James, I won't have it in my Bible. It contradicts Paul and all of Scripture. It's an epistle of straw. It has no evangelical way about it. Now, far be it from me to take a different point of view to Martin Luther, so I say this with some trepidation. But I rather like the letter of James. Um, I think, to be honest, if you're looking in James for a very scholarly salvationist theology, it might seem like a collection of lightweight homilies. But I've tried looking at it through as if he's citing and drawing upon a different section of scripture. If you see him drawing upon God's law, as set out in Deuteronomy and Leviticus and elsewhere, all these laws that have been so familiar to his audience, it seems to me that he is actually very theological. And he's saying, okay, this is the law, this is the theory. Israel's failed to keep it for a thousand years. Jesus has told us to be obedient. Um, how do we do this? How do we actually practically act out the God's perfect law? Um, how do we become that community following the way? How do we do something lovely for God? And it seems to me then that um, it's a very theological letter. Of course, I think perhaps Paul and James are facing slightly different challenges. Paul's going out um, into the Gentile world, and he's seeing things that he shouldn't see. He's seeing God's salvation being poured out on, on Gentiles, and on men and women. And it's clear that these people are receiving the Holy Spirit. Why? It shouldn't happen. So he has to develop a theology to explain that. Whereas the church in Jerusalem, the one that James and um, Peter and John are leading, it seems to me as facing a slightly different problem. Um, if you check back at what happened at Pentecost, that church is mainly founded on Jewish men. And that's kind of what they expected. You didn't need any, any great theology to explain why they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Joel had said it would happen just like that. And it seems to me that they're facing a different challenge. How do we live? How do we make this um, community uh, an obedient community to God? So if I can make a huge gross generalization, which there are many exceptions to, it does seem that Paul's saying, how then shall we be saved? And James is saying, how then shall we live? Here and now. Doing God's will on earth as in heaven. It seems to me that they are trying to live a life of obedience, making the world more lovely in God's eyes. They're a church in which the believers held everything in common, sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need broke bread in their homes and met together with glad and sincere hearts, looked after orphans and widows in their distress, kept Jesus' commands and lived as he did, 
purified themselves by obeying the truth and loved one another deeply from the heart. The sort of things that God found so lovable in the world. So that then, I think, is the question that they were facing. How then shall we live in this world to do God's will on earth as in heaven, to make it lovelier for God? Of course, doing good works, which James goes on quite a lot about, is nothing to do with trying to earn our place in the hereafter. It's about being obedient to Jesus' commands here and now. Nobody in the first church is trying to earn salvation by good deeds. Admittedly, they're living in expectation of Jesus' imminent return and not wanting to be caught napping. But they are a community that understands the inseparability of the here and now and the hereafter. Okay, Peter writes that we are foreigners and exiles, but I don't think he means that we're transients. He's emphasizing godly living in a pagan society. He also uh, encourages us uh, and warns us against being ineffective and unproductive. So I think that paints um, a picture for us about how we respond to that sentence, God so loved the world. It is a re- to me, that's a really remarkable statement. Why does God so love this fallen, dark, broken world, disobedient, people serving the prince of this world? Why does he so love it? Why does he remain so hopelessly in love with this world? I think our response is perhaps found in that first church. Be effective and productive, here and now. Act in ways that bring about the Father's will on earth as it is in heaven. Put kingdom values into action to make the world a more lovable place in God's eyes. A world that God God can't help but be in love with. In our evangelical zeal to tell people that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life, we mustn't forget that the quote starts by telling us that God so loved the world. I find that quote utterly remarkable. God still loves this world. God still wants us to be obedient, effective and productive, endeavouring to ensure his will is done on earth as in heaven. Now, of course, I know we all value those salvationist evangelical sermons, the ones about knowing a personal saviour, telling the world about God's saving grace so that we're safe at the final judgment. But that concern for eternity mustn't be allowed to eclipse the importance of practicing eternal values here and now in this world. We're not merely passing through. Of course this earth isn't our eternal home, but it is a beloved home. It is a world that God loves passionately. This is the world in which we are given a lifetime of opportunity to do God's will and make it an even lovelier and more lovable place in his eyes. Of course, God wants us to be saved and to secure our place in the next world. But God also wants to remind us that he so loved and still so loves this world.